no, you cannot live like we live here in New York, which is an equivalent city for $8,000 a month. When we were in New York recently, the apartment we were staying in was a small studio and it was like $4,200 or $4,400 a month. Nothing near the type of service or quality that we would get in Bangkok for much less. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm here with the boss man on my left and on my right, special guest, Jesse Schoberg. Could you say your name and what it is you do? I'm Jesse Schoberg, and I'm the co-founder of Dropin Blog. Dropin Blog is a blogging platform that allows you to put a blog on any website that wasn't built in WordPress. All right. We're in an incredible sky suite overlooking the city of Bangkok. Jesse, we're here because you're at an amazing moment in your life. As we speak, you're going viral. There was a CNBC post entitled, This Digital Nomad Left the U.S. for Bangkok and Lives on $8,000 per month. When I got to Bangkok for the first time, it just had that pulse. You've got this kind of street level city, which is your food vendors and your people running to work and taxis and motorbikes. There's a real energy on the street. And then there's also sort of this sky city that's happening in these skyscrapers that is fancy rooftop bars and restaurants, as well as interesting working spaces and malls. So you have the contrast of everything from the fancy Chanel store to the 20 cent pork on a stick skewer being drilled on the street. In this incredible article, you reveal your CEO salary from this amazing company you've built, which is quite a few ducats. And you show what you're achieving in terms of the results that you can get in a city like Bangkok when I'm back in Austin, Texas. Jesse, I can regularly spend $8,000 a month. And I'll tell you what, I'm not getting anything close to what you are showing in this video. So the first question is, how many people do you estimate have seen or read this article? Based on what we've seen and the feedback that's come, definitely in the millions, maybe 10 million. It's kind of a, around that range is what it feels like. So it's been a ride the last little bit here. How has your life changed? Mainly uh, getting a, a lot of like outreach from random people. And then here in Bangkok, getting recognized a little bit and just a lot of people from our community as well reaching out and a lot of people from normal life that want to live a life like ours reaching out as well to kind of say, how did you get started here? How does that work? So mostly pretty positive uh, reactions, a lot of people feeling inspired by it, which has been a pretty cool feeling to be able to empower people a little bit that way. How did this come to be? Did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? The last year we've been trying to do some outreach to get put my story slash drop and blog story, same, same, in top level media, tier one stuff in an effort to build a moat for our company. So what do you mean by build a moat? Because a lot of people have questioned your motivations. 
Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, the fact that a lot of people just think it's like a vanity play so that I can feel good about myself or something. Well, because you do look cool. The the general idea is that as Dropping Blog grows, we're starting to get some people kind of knocking on our door, talking about competition. And you know, anytime that you have a good idea, competition comes, right? And we've had a couple of people like give it a run, but it's hard. But, you know, of course, people are going to try and big competition may come. Big VC competition might come. We know that that's going to come. That's right. what happens. Like, it's no offense to the listeners of the show, but you're not worried about the TMBA listener. You're worried about a big tech company that already has CMSs or something, right? Yeah. And, you know, has like $50 million they want to throw it at this year with like lots of marketers and whatever, this kind of thing, right? So what our goal is, is to make sure that we solidify ourselves as the original and as the leader and as the like obvious choice. So we're starting to do a lot of white label with large companies. And when they come looking for solutions like ours, we want them to, when they do their research, to make it clear that we're the leader. So our goal over the last year was to get placements in things like Entrepreneur and Forbes and any other like of these top tier ones. And we were quite successful. And this CNBC one kind of hit a little different than some of the other ones and went really viral in a different way, but it got us a lot of uh, press. And also there was a bunch of ripple effect press that I got from it that where other people reached out, wanted to have me on their podcasts or their radio shows or whatever. Or the nightly news. Yeah. Or the nightly news. Often the case, what you try to become famous for is not what you actually become famous for. Well, that's an interesting theme here that I want to pick out, which is I'm curious about the other ones that didn't go viral. Because, you know, if Ian comes to me and says, let's go viral with our company so we can build a moat and so we can get these juicy backlinks and all this stuff, I'm going to go out and like try to get the company to go viral. But I'm guessing it's a lot easier to go viral as an individual. Well, that was kind of the reason why we kind of put myself as the figurehead of the marketing of our company, because the fact that I've been a nomad for 14 years or something is quite interesting from a normal media perspective. And especially now with remote work becoming a big topic these days. And so that's something that you can pitch. But then, of course, the goal is then when you search drop and blog, then you find out that I'm the founder, then all these things kind of come up. And then that creates some social proof when you see, oh, well, we've been written up in all of these publications and it kind of adds up in your mind. And so then if you're a tech company that's playing at a higher game than we are, or you're maybe thinking of acquiring us someday or these kind of things, you know, it creates some validation that we're not some guy in his basement that started up two weeks ago and that you're worried about how are we storing your data and did we do a good job? Which is and, important because yeah. there's this idea that when a company reaches a certain level that you can put all your blog content on them or you can put your financial data into them or you can trust them with whatever your photos, for example. We already had like a normal backlink plan and we already have our normal content marketing plan and these kind of things. But we thought as competition comes in, what can we do that's not repeatable? And Mm -hmm. going after these top tiers and spending a lot of time on trying to get those placements and just putting in the work there is something that even if you buy all the Google ads you want tomorrow, you don't get a feature in CNBC, right? Like, so these are things that are a lot harder to land, which was the goal to give us some moat so that it's harder for people to catch up when they do in inevitably try to copy us. Two questions. Did it work and how can other people do it? Well, I guess we'll find out if it worked in like over time. I mean, obviously there's been a lot of ripple effects that we've gotten even more press out of this. So that's like good. I can't say that it's like 
immediately translated into like a 30% increase in our business. Cause obviously most of this press and the people related to it aren't necessarily like target customers. They're like normal people. Right. Yeah. But it's more about the long-term ripple effects of that trust that is essentially built from that. And I think some of that's hard to quantify for sure. But I can say that over the last few months, not just from this piece, but from some other similar pieces, we have made some good partnerships with some pretty heavy hitting people that I think maybe these types of things helped. Hey, to be fair, the amount of work that it is to land these kind of placements is a lot of work. And it does show that we're doing something because if you're going to waste the time and effort to do that, obviously, like, you know, you should be probably working on your product or your marketing. And we are in a stable place with a lot of that. So this was like the next big thing that we could go after that we thought would be harder to duplicate, essentially. Do you hire an agency to do this or? Yeah, we worked with a, a couple different freelancers that helped us with just the outreach, we'll say. Because that, that's kind of anytime you want to do any media placement, you know. What was your cost in terms of time and dollars that you invested into this project? I mean, it's been over a year of stuff. And I guess I don't have like a fixed cost because other tasks involved with some of the team that I was using for that. So I can't throw a quick, you know, number on that. But definitely like thousands and thousands, like, you like know, 10,000, maybe also, again, we're talking about lots of marketing and different types of outreach. So yeah, but we could say possibly into the five figures. Yeah. Got it. I want to ask you about some of the responses, but first any downsides when Ian and I both saw the article come out, we kind of felt concerned because it's weird when you see someone you care for, like being presented publicly, you know what I mean? You don't want bad things to happen. Like, and I guess Maybe that's just like a representation of the cynical way I think about media. But when I see your face up there, first off, I was like, that's badass. And then second off, I'm like, I hope he's going to be okay. Yeah, I was nervous as well. Because <laughs> a few of the other things that we did, you know, whatever, like if I'm in some random entrepreneur article and I, they quote me or something, sure, some people see that and notice it, but it's not, this like actually went, went. So there was like a couple of weeks where I was definitely on my toes a little bit and kind of thinking we got to make sure that we don't screw this up and, you know, see if there's any like damage control that needs to be done. And a lot of the same questions, I guess, popped up that things that maybe got edited out or not covered in the video or the article. And I did a Twitter thread that kind of like, you know, I just basically like answered all the questions because yeah. like a lot of people kept asking the same things or were confused about stuff. And some people just wanted clarifications. I mean, there was a little bit of negative energy from a couple of different groups, but honestly, like it was mostly quite positive. I feel like pretty lucky that like, I kind of like had my 15 minutes and it wasn't like too dramatic and it was mostly like pretty positive. So yeah, I'll read some of the top YouTube comments. What making 230K and living in a place with a lower cost of living in the United States and liking it? I'm shocked. To those who say he's spending too much, not all digital nomads are poor. This guy's a high earner. And by spending a few thousand, he's living a lifestyle that would typically be accessible only to multimillionaires in the US and Europe. That is a theme of this show. And then someone weighs in to say, basically, for anybody who's deterred by how much Jesse makes, it's actually much more accessible. You don't need to make that much to live in Bangkok. These responses and responses like, hey, how do you do it, man? They're pretty stock. What are some of the more surprising responses you've had? The surprising slash kind of negative one is there's a lot of people that were like, oh, for $8,000 a month, you can live anywhere like that. And it's like, Clearly, none of these people have lived, quote, anywhere. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, you just like a city that that hits like Bangkok is very expensive. 
to live at the top tier, right? And so that's kind of the theme that I feel like a lot of people missed. And it's like, no, you cannot live like we live here in New York, which is an equivalent city for $8,000 a month. When we were in New York recently, the apartment we were staying in was a small studio and it was like $4,200 or $4,400 a month. Nothing near the type of service or quality that we would get in Bangkok for much less, right? And this is like kind of at trying to really, if we're truly comparing apples to apples, right? So there was a lot of that. And then the people that actually live in New York going like, no, actually, like if you want to live well here, it's like 20, 30 grand a month. Yeah. And so a little bit there. And then of course, something I wouldn't say super surprising, but a lot of expats that are like, oh, well, of course you can live here for like $500 a month and I can't believe you spend that on rent or whatever. And you know, you should be saving, et cetera, et cetera, which I guess is a different topic. A lot of people seem to miss the salary versus the spend yeah. differential. <laughs> like, oh, well, if you're making 8,000, it's like, well, no, like that's still like, we still have a lot of margin there, so. Right, uh, same people who are perfectly happy to spend 110% of their income give you crap for spending a fraction of or, yours. Or buy that Ford excursion for $60,000 <laughs> with a 5% loan, you know, and the car's worth like $20,000 two years later, right? Well, part of the reason, Jesse, I wanted to have you on is first off, fascinated by the story. It's like timely and topical in our space, which we don't cover a lot of things like that. And Ian and I did an initial reaction to it on the pod. And I left out something about that reaction you just mentioned, which we're going to call Spend shaming. And I'll just pull up a tweet here. Basically, Nomadic Matt, who is a really big influential travel blogger, shared the story like at on Twitter with some of his friends, all of people that I have followed online for many years. They're Asia-based expats for the most part. And basically, the tag was for your shaking my head, SMH pleasure, and linked to this. And then Peter Levels retweeted with comment, Imagine being triggered by foreigners actually spending money in the local economy and not backpacking on $10 a day like it's 2005. And then there was like a big debate about this. And then Nomadic Matt and Levels.io both said that they're big fans of each other and they, they made up and it wasn't a drama. But I'm not here for the drama, but we can talk about that if you want. I'm here for the concepts. Here's like one interpretation of this Twitter thing, which is I too went backpacking in Asia in 2001 and it changed my life and meeting backpackers changed my life. And it's a culture, it's a tribe. And there's a strong ethos in this original gangster community that finding ways to spend less in places like Thailand was in fact the game itself. Why? Because both crowds, these retired expats and the backpackers are on fixed income. The retiree doesn't want to outlive their money, which is a real concern. And the backpacker wants to extend their adventure. But also there's a gamesmanship and a signaling to it, which is that one of the best ways to demonstrate you know the game is to find a way to pay local prices. I understand Thailand, therefore I pay what a Thai would pay. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, people on a fixed income, the traditional crowd here in countries like Thailand, are motivated to keep the costs low because of the prior points. And so they'll identify people like Jesse to spend shame because they're worried about the prices getting drived up. But what you've demonstrated and why I'm so passionate about it, Jesse, 
is I'm in your mold. Like I was one of the first folks in this region with like completely mobile income that was beyond the regional income. And I remember marveling at it and hearing these conversations, this tribe talk about the one-upsmanship, the spend shaming, the ability to know the country all being related to keeping your costs low. And now you're here and you're basically like, Dagaf, like completely new paradigm. What do you make of this Twitter exchange and how did it affect you when you read it? It is interesting, like coming from Matt, who is someone that I feel like we all looked up to for many years. Like actually the first time I came to Bangkok, I remember like the spots I went to were We're like the guide from his article that was like the things to do in Bangkok. So it's kind of funny how these things kind of come full circle a bit. So I'll say that stung a little bit coming from him, you know, (laughs) Uh, he probably didn't mean, you know, of course, of course, but it was just interesting how that kind of played out, I guess. And, And also, you know, to his defense, people build identities about being cheap. I'm not saying that's like his identity, but like, it's hard to be the guy that walks around and be like, Hey man, I know where to get 99 cent coffee, right? And then you get everybody to buy 99 cent coffee. Well, getting a good deal is a good thing. And then you walk in the room one day with the Starbucks and you're like, well, what happened, dude? I thought you were the 99 cent coffee guy. So, right. <laughs> I mean, which to be fair, like is the brand that he built, right? No, like hate. It's just an interesting kind of paradigm or something like how it's sort of worked out. But uh, well, what is interesting to see levels represent his crowd because I was part of the entrepreneurial crowd. Levels although he's an entrepreneur himself, his tribe is actually tech employees mostly, or that's my understanding of it. And so when they went abroad, they had great salaries. And so they're part of this new paradigm that we represent, which is I was, I wrote it down here to say now fully remote world-class incomes care less about places like Thailand as a cost platform and more as a value platform. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And and that's something that I kind of learned also like looking through the Thai comments versus the American or Western, we'll say comments about all of this is that people in the West, they think of Thailand as just like cheap place. That's like kind of crappy that, oh, but at least it's cheap. So like, I'm excited about it and it's all like an adventure, but it's like, no, this is a very developed country that has all levels of everything, just like every country. In the U.S., like you can live in a small town that where things are kind of crappy and it's cheap and you can also like live in New York where it's expensive and they have all the things. And people forget that about not just here, but all of the countries, right? The same thing about Mexico City or the same thing about, you know, Manila or the same thing about Saigon or, you know, there's a fancy version of life there because guess what? There also is like upper class locals in these places that are like demanding these services and that kind of thing. So the local Thai people were like, yeah, of course, like there's an amazing life here when you earn more. And like, we all aspire to that. That's the goal, right? Like when you go down the BTS and you see the shiny malls filled with top end designers that it sort of like shows you that, oh no, there is like a fancy version of life here. It's not all just about 50 bat pad Thai, which is also great, right? It's not to hate on that. It's just to say that there is it's not like everything here is just like this hack adventure for backpackers. It's also a normal life that you can create any version of that you want, just like in whatever your home country is. The landscape too of Bangkok has changed dramatically in the last 115 years in terms of like the level of service that's being demonstrated. Like you can have a very high end experience. And like you said, this can be for people that are wealthy, that are locals, but also by the way, like you're from America right? And now you live in Bangkok. 
there are plenty of other people that are coming from different countries. This isn't just like the Western Jesse that's coming here. They're coming from Japan. They're coming from China. They're coming from all over the world to yeah, come to Bangkok. Yeah, a lot of people in a lot of the, the fancier neighborhoods here are, it's actually mostly other Asians, rich, wealthy Asians that are doing business here. That Indians, are, Japanese, yeah. Koreans. Yep, yep. Chinese. Lots, lots, lots. Yeah. So we're like... Westerners are the minority. Westerners yeah, definitely majority. the minority, for yeah. sure. As founders of remote companies, we all face hiring challenges, like hiring today instead of next week or next quarter, scaling our teams quickly, and even just defining what we want in a candidate, where to find them, how much to pay them, and how to recruit them. There's a lot of questions. Hiring's complicated but it doesn't need to be with RemoteFirstRecruiting.com. It's a service from our team where we help founders like you solve these hiring hangups. Even if you're not hiring today, you gotta take advantage of our 15-minute free strategy call. It's with our senior recruiter, Greg Valentine. He's not a sales guy. He's a senior recruiter, industry expert, and he's helped place hundreds of remote candidates and companies just like yours. He can discuss with you the patterns we're seeing in the marketplace, share with you case studies, and talk about how you can build a rock-solid hiring strategy. Hiring doesn't need to be hard. Let our team do the heavy lifting. TMBA listeners, take advantage of this strategy call. It's a simple way to grow a better business. So head on over to our site, remotefirstrecruiting.com, where we believe hiring the right talent is the best way to grow a great remote business. Schedule a call with our team today at remotefirstrecruiting.com. It's fascinating. I mean, if you haven't been here to Bangkok and you do, maybe the image of it comes from who knows what, some movies are like Leonardo DiCaprio on the beach or stories of backpacking you come here and you'll get Gucci quick, man. This place is popping off. This is a global, world-class city. I think the idea of like searching for value though, Jesse, which is essentially what it feels like you're doing is like you found an enormous value here in Bangkok for the amount of income that you're making, meaning your dollar really stretches far here and you appreciate the lifestyle. You participate in it. You know, it's not so different than a Californian moving to Austin, Texas, which we're experiencing there, Dan, right now. It's like they move in. They're like, oh, this place is cheap. million dollars for a house. Amazing. It's the same thing, right? And if you're a local Austinite, you throw your hands up and say, I can't believe it. You know, I worked my whole life to afford this house and now I can't even afford it. But I'll say this, like one of the interesting things I think about that response, which is happening in Austin right now, is the Thai response. And it seems like from what you were telling me was like the local response has been actually really positive. Yeah, it was pretty fascinating actually to be, I mean, when it was going pretty big here, basically a couple of people had seen the video and then they covered it in some blog posts in Thai and then linked to the video. They basically like summarized the video and the article in Thai. And then one of the local TV stations called me up and said like, hey, can we come interview you for the nightly news? And I thought like, obviously there's some language barriers and it was like, oh, can I come interview you some? And I thought like, oh, like next week or whatever. They're like, can we come over like in the next like 20 minutes? And it's like, you know, full lights, camera, interview guy. Then they had a guy translating for me like in earbuds with the interviewer. And then they like edited it up in post. And I was on the news that night, like the live 
eight o'clock news or whatever it was. Wow. Then that the next day got put into their, like the Facebook video got put on their Facebook page and then they put it on YouTube and that got shared around more than like the live news, you know, maybe like people saw it at the live news, but then of course, once it's on social, they can send it around and comment on it and stuff. And the YouTube video version of that interview had over 2 million views in two days. And so it just like went boom. And a lot of ties basically were impressed that you chose them, which I will say is a bit of a niche in PR in digital nomadism, <laughs> uh, which is like local pride marketing. Yeah. Some of the comments were pretty interesting to read. A lot of uh, local pride, just like, hey, I read the article, said he lived in 40 countries and, you know, he chose us. The foreigners are saying he could live anywhere. And they're like, yeah, damn straight. And he chose our place, you know? There was a bit of a pride there and to see that was like kind of cool. And hey, you know what I did? And a lot of our friends did. I'm just the one who made the media thing. Like Thailand is a very special place and there's a reason why we keep coming back here. And there's a reason why DCBKK is here and all that stuff because it's special. It's unique. It's a country that's winning and on the come up. And that's exciting. I think that the Thai people are kind of fed up with the, you can live here for $50 a day. Yeah. They have like a derogatory term for like, white backpackers while they are welcoming the fact that they don't want to just be like the crappy place that's cheap right they're like no we're like a good place and so then this is the first story that came through of like no you can live here even if you can live anywhere you might want to live here because we have all the things that they have in all those other places and maybe it's even better They've all seen a million YouTube videos of some guy in Chiang Mai who's like yeah. cost pro, like I can live here for 850 baht a week, you know, and just like yeah. that level that you see a lot of. So they were really excited about that. It's a place where you can achieve high end things and certainly like a whole new class of people, like someone like you, a CEO, a founder deciding that you're not going to be based out of the Valley or New York, right? You're going to be based here. And I think that's fascinating. One of the more interesting things too, Jesse, that happened in terms of outreach is uh, someone from the government reached out to you about their visa program. There's a a new like visa program that they're working on here called the LTR, long-term resident. And it's like a 10-year visa that's kind of supposed to be targeted at us. And basically they kind of missed the mark on a couple of the requirements. But the person who's running the program actually saw the video, reached out to me, and said like, hey, do you want to come in and talk about what we're working on and tell me, what, so you, cool. tell me what you think, basically. Can you imagine this, by the way, it's in amazing. America, like happening? It's like somebody <laughs> like Jesse comes up and they're like so, a politician or somebody in an elected position, like reaching out and it's be incredible. like, well, what do you think about my work? It would like never happen, <laughs> never happen. Basically, so I had, I had like a one hour meeting with them and kind of talked through the program and basically tried to, explain as best I could who our audience is that actually does want to live here, that makes good money and wants to contribute to the society here in a positive way, how they could maybe make some tweaks to the program in the future to make that more attractive for our demographic. And so we'll see. Maybe that will lead somewhere and I'm still in touch with them and it's pretty interesting. So cool that they reached out to you to try and help figure that out. You know, on this podcast, we've been talking about it for years, Dan, which is, in my mind, countries should act like companies, right? And they are starting to do that a bit, right? Which is like, they are competing for business. Yeah. And this is a big business, I think. Like people moving to Thailand to start a new life, to start a new business, you know? Essentially for them, imagine like any any country like this 
we basically just come here and just dump cash into society. We don't take jobs. We don't take customers. Most of our income is being sourced from the rest of the world. Literally everything I spend, it's all just spend, right? It's just like, it goes into restaurants and goes into like services and like assistance yeah. and like cleaning people and taxis and restaurants. And, you know, it's just endless. And all these people are just getting money coming that's not in their circular loop, yeah. right? And it just contributing to the net worth pile of the country itself and siphoning it from the rest of the world. So that's good for them. Yeah. We're in the era, the digital nomad era of six-figure remote incomes, completely remotable, and that's a revolution. Hey, Peter Levels, if you're listening, it would be interesting. I don't know if he does this at the top of nomads list. If you could change the nomads list for like different budget levels, like I want to ball out because the digital nomad community has long been on the cost train. Let's take this podcast to Value Town for a hot minute here. There's like some premium products that you can get here in Thailand. For one, if you cost out retirement here, so typically like working class retirees will come to Thailand and hope to not outlive their spending. But what about the guy who exits a business and instead of starting the next business, retires and becomes a private investor or an author or a podcaster? You can do that in Thailand. You can save decades by retiring here instead of retiring in the West. You can live on nearly nothing in Bangkok and you can live on a lot and you can live all the way in between. Like that is something that's very unique to see like this, which you cannot do in Austin, Texas. If you're at the bottom in terms of your income, like you are not living well. If you're at the top, you're living great. If you're in the middle, you're living like everybody else. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a special thing about here in general. I feel like specifically Thailand, I mean, you get some version of that in all of the developing countries, you know, it's like, oh, you can live a pretty good life for like pretty dang cheap. And then like you can live like a really good life as you go up the food chain. But the problem is, of course, in a lot of these places and Spain would be one of them. Or we could say the same thing about, say, maybe like Manila or Ho Chi Minh City or something. Once you go up a little bit further, there, there's a ceiling like because there's not enough demand for these like fancier things. 100%. What makes Thailand really special, though, is that like you can live actually really, really well for a thousand dollars. I mean, I don't know how many, I don't know how many of our friends like have that as that's always their thing in the back of their mind. Well, like, well, if my business implodes and I run out of money and yeah. I, I lose it all in crypto or whatever, you can whatever, tan laundry. And, it's like, yeah. cool, man, I'm heading back to Chiang Mai and I'm going to baseline at a thousand dollars a month and I will figure it out until the next one. And hot like, take, is there a better place in the world to baseline than Chiang Mai in your opinion? In my opinion, it's the best one. I think that there could be a, maybe an argument made for Kuala Lumpur, I think. Wow. Uh, and Kuala Lumpur, I think, is greatly underrated in the fact that I feel like the culture doesn't like feel quite as like naturally welcoming or something. Sure. But as far as like talking about this like baseline and stuff, you know, they have like really good value on apartments, probably the best value in apartments in the whole world. They have the really nice, big, fancy, tall buildings like here but they're way cheaper for like the quality and like the city center and that kind of stuff. They have the best value in apartments and you know, they have a good food diversity because they have their three core cultures of Chinese, Malay and Indian uh, in Indian. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so like, you know, then you have all this stuff, but anyway, so I think that KL is maybe a sleeper spot that interesting. is interesting. A lot of people will say Medellin because it has like kind of a similar cost of Chiang Mai, 
But for me, it doesn't hold a candle to Chiang Mai. Like the food is way better in Chiang Mai. The safety is way better. The access to goods is better. That's the other thing you get in Thailand where it just crushes. You have access to goods. Like a lot of people, when they say they don't want to leave the US, they're like, oh, Amazon, blah, 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 which I get. You want to like, <laughs> you know, something pops into your head and you're like, you know what? I decided that. I want a little stand to put my, hang my headphones on, you know, one of those things. And you have that idea at two in the morning and then you jump on Amazon and then you find the best one with the best ratings and then you have it shipped to you tomorrow. Yeah. Well, you can do that on Lazada here and there's less margins because all that stuff's coming from China anyways. Right. And here now, different than like five years ago, they basically have all the same stuff is on Lazada, but you're getting at the real prices. So anyways, you have that access to goods, which is another thing that I think people fear about in a lot of developing countries like Bali, for example, which a lot of people like living there and I do too, but like the access to goods is nothing like here. Like here you have everything. And so then you can build the quote real life that you had in the other place. That's not just like, oh, it's a fun adventure. Like, sure. no, you can get your headphone stand. I want to round off the episode, but I'm tempted to ask you, you know, we've been talking all this great stuff about Thailand, but during the pandemic, you know, a lot of these locations took a huge L, you know, people remembered that, oh yeah, Thailand is an authoritarian regime. You know, there's other things like that. What's your take on that? Do you think it was an L and do you think we're just, it's just back to good, 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 or did it change anything for you? Well, I think on that note, as a nomad, I think it did solidify that options are good. As us, that's one of the leverages that we have is, you know, we can be in other places, but also maybe the idea of like, maybe not the worst idea to consider some of this old flag theory stuff that maybe is actually starting to matter. Uh, and so it's like, hey, maybe having a couple residencies wouldn't be the worst idea. Maybe considering places that you could actually call home in case things do change, because you're right, politics change, you know, weather patterns change when, you know, things like the pandemic come and like borders close and, you know, we didn't think that could happen. And now we see like, oh, it can happen. So having some options there, I think is good. I do think Thailand fared very well. They let people stay the whole time. You know, people were allowed to do extensions. They did close their borders for a little bit, but this is one of the places that I feel like when people start talking about the in case sort of places, I think Vietnam, Thailand, Mexico, I think are some of the, my favorite places for that because they can self-sustain. They can close their doors and they've got enough labor. They've got enough land. They've got enough resources. They can, they can self-sustain. They can have great food, great stuff, and they don't need to rely on the outside where, you know, you got somewhere that is all relying on imports. Like Singapore. You've got a problem, yeah. you know, and then, you know, maybe, maybe when they need the money, maybe Vietnam's really excited to like send you all their chicken, you know, but when push comes to shove and the borders are closed and we're worried about the next war or something, guess who's not getting chicken, you know? <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, that's something to think about when we zoom out on, on the benefits of being a nomad and the potential future and hedges, et cetera. Cool. Any more questions to round it out? Uh, here's for hoping that a top-tier media company reaches out after this podcast. <laughs> Not holding my breath, but it could happen. And we could all be famous together. Thanks, Jesse. All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. 
We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.